Throughout the history of mankind, there has been one question that mankind continues to try to answer themselves. It's one question we all ask. It's one question we see asked multiple times in the Bible, from the New Testament to the Old Testament. It's this question that often we try to perform ourselves. We try to be the answer to this question. How you answer this question will determine how much time you spend reading God's Word. How you answer this question will determine how much time you spend in prayer with the Lord. It will determine if you pursue evangelism, how you witness and how you speak to others. It will change and determine your outlook on life and your outlook on eternity. It's this question this morning that we're going to see in our text and we're going to answer. The title of my sermon this morning is The Question We All Ask. The Question We All Ask. We find it in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. The crowd came to Jesus and they asked him this question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? In essence, the people were asking, what do we need to do to make ourselves right with God? Maybe you've asked the question before. Maybe subconsciously you live that out, trying to pursue what you need to do to make things right between you and God. We'll see this in our text this morning before we get into that. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. God, may you illuminate our hearts and minds this morning. God, help us to see what you want us to see in John chapter 6. It is such a rich chapter. It is deeply theological. There are doctrines in John 6 that are difficult to understand, but they are your word, and we must grapple them and grasp with them and try to understand them because you've given us your word, and it pertains to all things and godliness. So God, we don't want to leave anything out. Be with us this morning as we open and read and study your word. Give me the words to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 22 of John chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor the disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking after Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So Jesus, as Terry preached last week, did the miracle feeding of the five loaves and two fish, fed thousands. And then the departure in the boat, away, the disciples, Jesus was walking across the water. This crowd is trying to follow after Jesus. They find Jesus. The people were seeking after him. And when they find Jesus, we wouldn't guess what happens next, how Jesus responds to this crowd. He gives them a harsh rebuke. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking to the crowd, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. As I've mentioned, Jesus knew their heart. He knew their intentions. He knows your heart and he knows your intentions this morning. I mentioned in my last sermon that when the Bible says someone in the Bible, 
was seeking after signs or the miraculous workings, it wasn't a compliment. It showed their heart. They weren't coming to Jesus Christ for the right reasons. And in this scripture, Jesus goes on and he says, you weren't seeking me for even a sign and wonder, but because you had your fill of food. A few examples of this we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of where people were fixated on the miracles rather than Jesus Christ himself. Listen along. Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign. Mark 8. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Jesus, sighing deeply in his spirit, said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I will tell you, no sign will be given. Luke 11, others came to test Jesus, and they were demanding a sign from him from heaven. Luke 23, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Sounds great starting out, right? Glad to see Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time. Still seems good, because he had been hearing about him. Still seems good. And he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. There's where it went off track. We see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, now Herod, all requesting signs, demanding signs for Jesus to do. Not a good group of people. John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews then said to Jesus, what sign then do you do to show your authority for doing these things? John 4 says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This is why the scripture says in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. That's how Jesus responded when people came to him with wrong motives and wrong intentions. You have to come to Jesus Christ in the right manner. So we need to understand that we need to approach the Word of God and Jesus Christ in the right manner. We don't, as Christians, follow after our feelings. We don't follow after the supernatural or after miracles. We follow the Word of God because it is everything we have been given. I want us to know this morning there is nothing outside of God's Word that can benefit your life or change your eternity, or add anything of eternal value to your life. There is nothing outside of this that can give, or benefit you, or grow you, or change you for an everlasting or eternal destination. We can change our feelings, or we can change this, but ultimately it's not changing our heart. Only God's Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, does that. So I want to ask us this morning, even as we begin, are we reading God's Word? Are we pursuing to know God through reading His Word? Question for us as Christians this morning. We see this crowd, they came to Jesus seeking after signs. They weren't seeking Him for the right reasons, which would have been they acknowledged Him as Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, the Messiah. They weren't coming to Him for that reason. They weren't even coming to him because they saw him do a miracle. Jesus says, no, they weren't coming for that reason either. They were coming because they ate their fill of loaves. Yet even in the midst of these people coming for the wrong reasons, Jesus shows extreme patience with them and teaches them. We continue in our text in verse 27. He patiently shares this with them. He says, do not work for the food that perishes 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, Jesus Christ, the Father has set His seal. This term, Son of Man, was a reference to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus was speaking to them about Himself. He was saying, I am I am that eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Everything you're seeking in life is found in me, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was pointing them to. Yet the crowd asked a question that embodies a question that we all ask. And all throughout history, mankind continues to ask. They didn't look upon Christ. They look upon themselves. And in verse 28, they say this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? They were asking, what do I need to do in my own strength to be approved by God? How do I please God? What can I do for God? Tell us what we need to do that so we can be blessed by God. Those were the type of questions they were asking. Many times, I think all of us, we may not be asking the question, but we're working like it depends on us. We're working, trying to work towards God like it depends on what we do rather than what God has already done for us. That means we're asking the question. We actually think we can do something for the Lord. And that's where these people were. Jesus was not leading them to this question. Jesus was leading them away from the question. Jesus was leading them to himself as the answer. I am the answer. I am the bread. I am the living water. I am eternal life. Yet they end up way over here Asking, so what do we need to do? What do we need? Exact opposite of where Jesus was trying to get them. Jesus is the bread of life. We do the same thing because we think we can justify ourselves. We think we can provide something. We can provide an answer. We can do something. We can fix it. So these people came to the Lord really thinking they could do something for God. We see this question asked all over Scripture. In Luke 18, the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and what did he ask? Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? The Philippian jailer, Acts 16, what do I need to do to be saved? The lawyer comes to Jesus and uh, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The prodigal son in Luke 15, he comes back to the father, representative of God. He comes back and says, make me as one of your hired servants. He's asking, what shall I do? Because he went and squandered away the wealth, right? And then he realized, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do. So he came back and he's saying, listen, take me in as one of your hired slaves so that I can work to be in your presence. The same thing. What can I do to earn my place among God? I want to ask us, church, are we asking the same question this morning? Or maybe we're pursuing in life. When we look at our priorities, we're we're pursuing everything else, but really what matters. We don't have God first in our life. We're pursuing everything else. We're not asking the question, How can God be right with me? That's very different than how can I be right with God. But how can God be right with me? This attitude that they have, the attitude that that I have, the attitude we often have is pride because we think we're in a state of being able to do something for the Lord. We think the Lord has me on his team. 
He must, he must be pretty excited about that because of what I'm able to offer. I mean, I'm, I'm giving him some of my money or I'm giving him some of my time or not everybody does this and this is what I'm doing. He must be at least somewhat excited about that. And, and it's an attitude of pride thinking we can do something for the Lord, asking the question all throughout the New Testament and all the Old Testament was about, what do I need to do for God? is just presuming that we can do something. And it's a prideful attitude. This morning in core class, they're working through Exodus. They're working through the Old Testament. I encourage you to come if you want to grow as a believer. So many times as believers, we're in a stagnant state and we're not growing. I encourage you to come to class. They were talking about Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And when you look through the Ten Commandments, how many of us have kept them? How many of us have lied this morning. As in not this morning, maybe some of you have lied this morning, right? <laughs> Don't answer that one if you lied this morning, but if you lied in your lifetime, we're all liars. Doesn't matter how big or small, if you've stolen something, you're a thief. Jesus says if you hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder. He says if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. Have you dishonored your parents? Yes. Have we always kept the Sabbath? Have we always set aside time, even just one day for the Lord? No. Have we used God's name in vain? We've committed blasphemy. I mean, even the ten simple ones, we've all broken. And so really, what we bring to the table, we've utterly failed at. Yet we ask the question, and these people ask the question, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? In verse 29, Jesus tells us, and he tells them what needed to be contributed to this relationship. So he answers their question. They said, what do we need to do? And Jesus answers, verse 29, this is the work of God. If you want to be doing the work of God, then you believe in him whom he has sent. This leads us to our first point this morning. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. The work of God is to believe in Jesus If you want to be doing the work of God, you must believe in Jesus. Here's the problem. The crowd and Jesus are in two different fields playing two different games. The crowd is asking, what actions do I need to take to make me right with God? What actions do I need to take to make right belief? And Jesus is not commanding them to produce actions, but to produce the very belief that produces actions. So they're saying, what do I need to do? And Jesus is saying, I want you to produce belief. Because that belief is what's going to produce actions. True belief in Jesus Christ produces actions. As a believer, if you're a believer, you should be producing godly actions. Yes, we struggle with sin, but your life should look very different as a believer than it did when you were an unbeliever. Simply doing what is right having good morals, being an upstanding citizen, coming to church every week, giving, praying five times a day, those are your actions. They do not make you into a believer. Jesus didn't tell them to go do something. He said, produce belief. So we've seen him ask this question. Jesus said, to be doing the work of God, you must believe. Now at this point, the crowd understood Jesus just made a claim that he is the Messiah. We know this because of verse 30. Let's keep, continue on in the text. So they said to him, 
Then what signs do you perform, Jesus, that we may see you and believe you? What work do you perform? So here's the conversation. The crowd came and said, what do we need to do? Jesus said, if you want to do something, you have to produce belief. And then they come back to Jesus and they say, if you want us to produce belief, then you have to do a miracle. You have to prove it. Because you have to prove it, which is going to make us believe. Are you following? They asked the question. Jesus responded, produce belief. And then they said, well, what sign do you perform so that we may believe? The people said, all right, if you want a Messiah, then prove it. Remember, Jesus just walked on water. He just fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. The day before, these people saw it, and now they're again asking for another miracle. What do we think about that? What does that do to our theology in regards to going out and witnessing to people this morning? They just saw this, and now they're asking for another miracle. He's saying, simply believe. This leads us to point number two this morning. Unbelief in Jesus is never satisfied. Unbelief in Jesus Christ is never satisfied. They have Jesus Christ, God in the flesh before them. He's already performed miracles in front of them the day before, feeding thousands, yet they ask for another sign. I want us to understand, because when we understand this, it radically changes how we do some things, that miracles, signs, healings, even multiplying food, if we could get up and go out in the community today and perform some miracles... That may make people believe in God, but that will not make them worship Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what these people had. They had Jesus Christ standing in front of them, and they said, well, we know we saw those miracles. You want us to produce belief? Well, then you, then you have to do it. Produce, make us produce belief. Do another miracle. And they have Jesus Christ. They're still not believing. I mean, when we wrap our minds as Christians around what it takes for someone to go from unbeliever to believer, we see miracles happen and they don't believe. How do we fit that into our theology? How can we compete with Jesus Christ and what he did? And they still didn't believe. Church, we need to understand that unbelievers are in a continual state of blindedness, unbelief, and hardened hearts. Their unbelief will never be satisfied. This is why we talk about Jesus Christ so much as the church. I have a video clip that I want to show us. And this is firsthand, just in our world today, showing unbelief in Jesus Christ is never satisfied. Let's take a look. If I could prove to your satisfaction that God, the God of the Bible exists, would you worship him? No. If you could prove to my satisfaction that God does exist, the God, the God of the Bible uh, exists, would I worship him? No. Why not? Because he's kind of a jerk. I would not. Um, just because someone created us does not mean we're divinely tied to um, blindly worship them. If I could prove God to your satisfaction, the God of the Bible, would you worship him? Um, probably, I mean, if you could prove, so, I mean, are you going to prove If I could prove the creator to your satisfaction, would you worship him? 
you haven't done that. So it's no, not I'm, it's a, I'm asking. If What's I could, we're asking atheists why they are atheists. Why are you an atheist? Simply lack of evidence. Lack of evidence in God? Yes. If I could prove God's existence to you, would you worship him? I'd say that I would accept his existence. Would you worship him? That's an entirely different question. Uh, probably not, 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 not. Romans chapter 1 clearly teaches us that everyone knows and believes in God. But they suppress it by their sinfulness. It says all of creation, all of heaven testifies to his existence, but they trade the natural relationships for the unnatural. And instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the created thing. So it's not a matter of proving God's existence. This video shows that unbelief in Jesus is never satisfied. Let me share with you another illustration. I have a measuring cup here. And so often in the Christian life, we think that becoming a believer from unbeliever to believer is something transitional. It's something linear from this point, unbeliever to believer. It's almost like filling up a cup. You have unbeliever, and maybe when you get to the top of the cup, there'll be a believer. The problem is, is that no matter how much you put in the cup, you can never get to believer because believer's not a measurement on their cup. It's not a measurement on an unbeliever's cup. You can never get there from here. You ever heard the, that phrase? That's an unbeliever. How do you become... You can't get there with this type of cup. The measurement is not listed on there. When the Bible speaks about someone being born again, it's not transitional. It's transformational. This is why we see all over the scripture, it's not they just got enough knowledge or they, they got that Bible verse or there's enough historical evidence that now that they believe. No, something spiritual happened from God to them. John 3, 3, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you can't see the spiritual unless you're born again. 1 Peter, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. It's transformational. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you remember when we preached in John, only flesh produces flesh. An unbeliever can only produce un... What, church? Belief. They can't produce belief. And a believer produces belief through the spirit. It's not transitional. It's transformational. Have you experienced this transformation in your life? Just because you're here this morning, I'm not assuming you're a Christian. I was in church for a lot of years, and I knew a lot about God, and I wasn't a believer. I had never experienced this transformation. Transitionally, it seemed I was growing, like I was a believer, but I wasn't. That's a question for you this morning. Have you experienced this transformation in your life? Listen, when we understand that unbelief is never satisfied, it's going to change how we do things. We're going to stop working out of our own efforts and begin to work out of the efforts that Christ has already completed on the cross. 
We're going to spend more time in prayer because you know what? Unless the Lord works and changes their heart, there's nothing that I can do. So I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to understand that my words will never change someone. God's words will. But if I think my words can change, then, then I'm going to really be talking and I'm going to have a lot of pressure on me. But if I understand unbelief, someone as an unbeliever that they can't do it, they can't get there from here, then I'm going to be committing this to my mind. I'm going to be reading it and I'm going to be wanting to understand it and use God's word because God says he will transform their heart through his word. Those are some things that happen when we understand unbelievers only can produce unbelief. So maybe you're asking the question, well, if the work of God is to believe, and that's what Jesus called them to do, but they can't believe because they're unbelievers, well, then how do they get a new cup, right? I mean, that's a legitimate question. How does this work out? Jesus is calling them to believe, but unbelief is never satisfied in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus answers this in our following text, so let's continue on. In verse 31, we see that these people expected Jesus to do more than Moses. They looked at Moses and they quoted him here in verse 31. They referenced back, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. These people were fixated on Moses and expected the Messiah to outperform Moses. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus says, remember, Moses was just a man. I'm standing before you as that bread, the true bread, not the manna that perishes. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread's not the man, it's the Messiah. Then they said, Give us this bread always, in verse 34. This is when Jesus responds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, listen to what Jesus said. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They needed a new cup. Which leads to our final main point this morning. Belief in Jesus is the work of God. Belief in Jesus is the work of God. It's not the work of man. So the work of God is to believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus called them to do. They can't do that because all they can produce is unbelief. And this is when Jesus in the following text says, listen, the belief in Jesus, that's not the work of you. It's the work of God. Look in verse 37. Clearly lays this out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So everyone who has been given to Jesus Christ will come to Jesus for salvation. That's what he just taught us. And he says, those who, who have been given will come. Which means those who have not been given will not come. There are none who have been called who will not go. And there are those who have not been called, they will not go. Verse 38, for I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him, God the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
So now Jesus is also reiterating, those who are given, I will not lose one. So everyone given will come, and I will not lose one. Those who have not been called will not come. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 41 and 42, another example of their unbelief. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Even though they're seeing him do miracles and they know in their hearts that he is God, the Messiah, they still are not satisfied. Their unbelief continues. Jesus answered them in verse 43, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you had concern about the earlier verses, this one makes it even more clear and reiterates it. No one can come to God unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we know not everybody's saved because not everybody makes it into heaven. Those who have been called will come. No one who has been called is going to come unless they've been called. This is exactly what Scripture says. Romans 8.8 8. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Church, this is why belief in Jesus is the very work of God himself, not of man. The belief we have in Jesus is the belief we were first given from Jesus. Because our unbelief could only produce unbelief. So we've seen so far the work of God he calls them, the work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. We can't work our way to God. Jesus was trying to get to the heart of the matter. Unbelief in Jesus is never satisfied, no matter how much we put in the cup. And I've done plenty my share of arguing with people and trying to convince people or debate people into the kingdom. And it wasn't until I really realized they need a new heart. And I can't do that. I began to spend more time in prayer. And I began to use God's word more. But before that, I tried using every evangelistic effort and method. And trying to figure out this. And to the rocket scientist or to the person who believes in evolution. I'm going to come up and I'm going to learn a thousand different historical things. And why evolution is wrong and all these. Evolution's not the problem. Science is not the problem. The problem is they love their sin and they don't want to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the problem. And so when we understand that, we run to God's word, we run to the Holy Spirit, and we pray for God to intervene. When we understand this, it radically changes what we do and how we do it in the Christian life. Third, belief in Jesus is the work of God. Jonathan Edwards one of the greatest preachers, theologians, America's greatest intellectuals, he said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. 
I want us to think about that. What is the only thing we can own in this relationship with God? The only thing we can own, the only thing I can own is my sin. And, and it's, it's, it's our belief that when we own our sin, listen, we should own it. I think a lot of Christians, they, they think their sin is like this. I have, I have my sin I want to bring to God. Listen, if, if this is your view of sin, you just have a tiny bit of sin in your life, you're not going to be very thankful to the Lord. But when we own our sin, the whole truckload that comes with us, because all we've done is failed and messed up and done things ourselves, when we own our sin and we come to God, we know we're coming to the table with God. The only thing I'm bringing is everything he hates and despises and he's commanded me not to do. That's the only thing I can own in this relationship. And we bring it to God and we're thankful for what God does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not of man, it's of God. Salvation is by grace alone, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of any of our works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is through faith alone, Romans 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's not about what we do, following the law. Salvation is by Christ alone, Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are you right with God this morning? Question for you. Are you right with God this morning? In the quiet depths of your heart, has this transformation happened? And if it's happened, do you understand what you bring to the table? Because the fuller picture you have of your brokenness, the fuller picture you're going to have of his love, mercy, and grace in your life. And that's going to overflow. How can it not overflow into our lives? Listen, if we're not overflowing with praise and thankfulness, in our lives for Jesus Christ, then one of two things has happened. Either one, we don't realize the contribution we make to the relationship. We're bringing a tiny little, we think we're, for the most part, pretty good, but God just needs to fix this 5% area in our life. Listen, if we're not overflowing with thankfulness and joy in our life, that's probably because of why it is. Or secondly, you're not a believer. Those are the only options. Maybe you're like I was, and I grew up in church, and I was there and I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I, I really thought that these things happened, but I had not called upon him. I had not brought my sin to him and called upon him and said, save me. I need a savior. I implore you this morning not to leave this place until you do business with God. You know who you are. You know what God wants done in your life. So I encourage you, don't leave this place till you get right with God. Spend time with God. He's calling for you. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. If you'd like to have someone pray for you, 
myself and two others are going to be right here in the front. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, come talk with me. If you have questions, if you have things you're struggling with, would love to talk with you right after the service. I'll be right here in the front. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your goodness. God, the only thing we can own in this relationship with you is our sin. And we bring it to you. And you take it, you took it upon the cross. You bore our sin. But then the power of the Holy Spirit, you were raised again. You defeated death, you defeated sin. We can have victory because of what you've done. God, now we can be called children of God. We can be called saints. But it's not because of what we've done. It's because of what you have done. God, I pray for the person here this morning who's a believer. And and they've been at the same place in their Christian walk for so many years. God, get a hold of their heart. Drive them to your word. God, I pray for those here this morning who are unbelievers. And they're feeling convicted and they want to be right with you and you're calling them. God, may they come. May they be right with you this morning. We thank you for your goodness, for your love and for grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.